Good morning, Grace Fellowship. Good morning. My name is Tom Hallman. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. And I want you to know that I did not grow up being part of a mainstream evangelical Christian church. And I know many of you here are in that same boat. Because of that, there are many items, many many concepts, many terms, many ways of thinking that took me a long time to figure out once I became a Christian at age 19. So, for example, it took me a long time to realize that the Bible uses the word worship very differently than the local Christian radio station does. And I had also never gone away to a Christian camp as a kid. And so if you have grown up going to Christian camps as a kid, let me just tell you, that's an entire subculture of Christianity that is near indecipherable to anybody who did not. Okay? I, oh, and of course there was Veggie Tales. I still don't understand Veggie Tales, and I will probably die happy that way. But there was one idea expressed in just one word that immediately had a huge impact on me once I became a Christian, but it also was used in altogether different ways than how I understood it. And that word is fellowship. Okay, so I knew that that was a word. I'd heard it before. I know that Tolkien used it to describe this epic journey of some hobbits and elves and dwarves and things. I knew that. And I knew that academic types really wanted to be fellows in their fellowships, though I didn't know what that meant. Uh, mostly, I always felt like fellowship was a word that people used as kind of like a really fancy, sophisticated way of meaning like hanging out with my friends. You know, so someone would say, well, come now, let us gather Preston and go uh, gather over some Doritos and some Halo and we'll have a jolly good fellowship together. Like that, that's how I pictured the word fellowship. But regardless of your own associations with the word fellowship, I want you to know that here at Grace Fellowship Church, we mean something a little bit different. And as we continue our three-part series on our church principles, Grace, Fellowship, and Church, my aim today is to help you understand biblically what we mean by the term fellowship. And perhaps like pre-19-year-old Tom, some of you are here right now and are not Christians. And right now, everything that you're experiencing so far this morning feels maybe a bit like Christian camp with its strange songs and rituals and words. And, and you're just kind of checking this out and wondering, what are we doing here? Well, if that's you, I want you to know two things. One, I sympathize and I understand. It can feel really strange at first. But two, I'm really glad you're here. I am, because if it's anything like my experience, back when I was... 19 years old and sitting where you are and listening to other people talk about God and his son Jesus, and it was all just so new and odd to me, eventually, when I got through my initial shock of that, it completely changed my life. And I hope this morning that as you hear us in all of our oddities, you can see through it to the message that we're trying to convey, and I hope that it changes your life too. So as we always do here at Grace Fellowship, we're going to answer life's big questions as well as Christianity's weird words like fellowship by looking at the Bible. So please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, which if you have one of the church Bibles is page 634. And I'm going to be reading some verses from chapter 4 today. So it's important that we have the context 
for that. We need to, to know what chapters 1 through 3 are about if we're to understand chapter 4. So here's the short summary of chapters 1 through 3. Okay, Paul is a Jewish Roman citizen that, that Jesus Christ had sent to go into non-Jewish communities. And he had sent a letter to one such community named Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city renowned for its worship of a god named Artemis, who was a pagan god. Paul has, had visited there earlier and is now writing to encourage the young church that had sprung up. In the first half of this letter, what we call chapters 1 through 3, Paul's encouragement takes the form of describing the love and mercy and power of God in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to save his people. You might wonder why. Like, what is it? What do they need to be saved from? And the answer is somewhat counterintuitive. They and we need to be saved from God himself. That's because they and we are not right with God. We've ignored him, we've rebelled against him, and we purposely sought after things that he hates. Because of that, God should have completely destroyed Ephesus and State College and everything in between. But God, being a merciful God, instead sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty that we ourselves deserve to pay. So that all those who are willing to trust in Jesus are now perfectly right with God and are rich recipients of his kindness and love. Now, with that grand message in mind, Paul also reminds the church that they are to be united, both Jew and non-Jew alike. For despite their many differences, they have this in common. They are acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. And so now we pick up in the second half of the letter, beginning at chapter 4. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6 together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pause there. I entitled the first point on your outline, We Are Called to Oneness. And I did so because of the two repeated themes found in just these six verses. Calling and oneness. Calling is the word that Paul often uses to refer to God's invitation for others to enter his kingdom. But it's more than that, too, for, for just as switching citizenship in an earthly kingdom would require many changes, cultural, behavioral, legal, and so on, so it is with God's kingdom. Thus, Paul urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That is, the invitation to become a Christian is wide open to anyone. But once you accept that invitation... You cannot go on living as you had before, as though you were still a citizen of the old kingdom. So we might ask, what changes are required? What does citizenship in this new country, this new kingdom, look like? Paul's response to that revolves around the idea of oneness, or, or we might say unity. He first lists some virtues necessary for oneness, things like humility and gentleness, Patience, forbearance, and love. Now, that all makes sense, of course, because can you think of anyone with whom you feel truly unified and close to who does not have those traits? 
A man lacking in humility may be many things. He could be brilliant, could be talented, capable, even generous. But will he have truly close companions without humility? No. Or consider a woman who lacks patience. She may be intelligent, she may be sweet, creative, even hospitable, but without patience, she will leave behind her a wake of broken relationships. That's why Paul urges his Ephesian readers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. This is the code of conduct for people in God's kingdom. This is what Christian character should look like. Moreover, Paul says, these qualities are not to be sought after sullenly. Our attitude not, uh, cannot be, okay, fine. If I have to be united with this moron, I will. That is not okay. Paul says in verse 3 that God's people should be eager to maintain this unity. My friends, Christians should be known by their zeal for unity. Whenever we see disunity, wherever we perceive that there are divisions within our ranks, wherever a sin or offense is keeping us from oneness, regardless of who is at fault, we must eagerly pursue reconciliation. And Paul tells us why. The reason we are to be one is because God is one. There is one body, Paul says. That's a metaphor that Paul uses for the church. There's one body. There's one faith. There's one baptism. And there is one God and Father of all. In other words, if you are not part of this oneness of God, what are you a part of? There aren't many faiths, many baptisms, many gods. Or at least not if you still want to say, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. It's just not an option biblically. No matter what any pastor or professor or so-called expert on the Internet says to the contrary. And it's, it's not like this truth is any easier to stomach today than it was in Ephesus. Okay? Roman culture back then had a, had a vast and complex series of gods available to them. And the Christian message that there is one God and Father was just as shocking and scandalous then as it was unpopular and is today. But this text doesn't leave us any alternative. This is the God and Father of all and over all and through all and in all. So you may disagree with it and you may hate it, but it is not an option to say that biblically there are many faiths, many gods, nor are there many ways to the one God. All those things are not possible, nor can there exist any disunity among Christians as we seek after him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that can all strike me as a very hard pill to swallow. Sometimes I simply don't want to seek unity, and especially if I feel like I was the one wronged. I I say to myself, well, they're just dumb. Let them come and apologize to me. Or perhaps, you know, you, you just mention in a certain group some, some bit of gossip. You know, you, you might even justify it by, by saying, in doing so, I'm just applying a little social pressure to this person so they learn to change. Yeah, if I go to them, I might be awkward, but if everybody knows this thing about them, then we'll just kind of help them, you know, make different choices. 
Or, or maybe we do go to the person directly, but in doing so, we lack that humility and gentleness that Paul says is required. And so we come out with guns blazing and a long list of their wrongs and, and offenses readily on our lips and in our hearts. But look, in this text, Paul urges us, he's pleading with us to lay aside all those evil, selfish thoughts. Paul is saying that if I am rejecting the one body, I'm the one who's not part of it. I'm the one who has chosen to separate myself from God and all his people. Should I expect God to even allow me into his presence in that case? This is not an idle threat. This is not a minor sin. Jesus tells us elsewhere, particularly in Matthew 25, that on the last day, he's going to take a look at how we treated other people, and he's going to say, how about I treat you like you treated them? How about that? For some of you, that's fantastic news. But for many of us, those that thought that they could treat other people people however they liked, so long as they pay lip service to Jesus, they're not welcome. That passage says they're going to be cast out forever. Now listen, as far as I'm aware, there are no so-called white supremacists in this church. As far as I know, none of you would say, I am a white nationalist, okay? But just in case I'm wrong, or just in case in God's providence, these words somehow reach the ears of someone who would identify that way, I need to tell you that this text comes with a resounding rebuke for you. Because listen to what this text says. If you claim to know Christ, but you hate another Christian because of their skin color or ethnic background or political perspective or sexual orientation or anything else, you do not know Christ. In fact, if anyone, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, or regular church-going member of Grace Fellowship Church of State College, Pennsylvania, demonstrates by their actions that they are against maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with every member of Christ's body, you do not know Christ. You are reading this text, and then you are calling God a liar, and the truth is not in you. If that is you, you should be very, very afraid. You should tremble at the thought of calling Almighty God a liar and casting aside both his word and his people with whom he is altogether identified. And so I would plead with you, if you're here in this room or you're hearing this at some point after August 20th, 2017, where you are, I plead with you to pray right now and ask God to forgive you while there is still time because we don't know when that last day is coming. And then spend the rest of that day, the rest of that week, the rest of the year, as long as it takes getting right with Christ's body. You and all of us must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there is no alternative to that. So the point of this section is clear, right? We are called to oneness. Christians must be unified. Yet at the same time, 
we recognize just by looking around a room that we're not all the same, right? We, we come with our own gifts and abilities, and each of us individually have roles to play in God's kingdom. And that's where Paul goes next. So let's take a look at the next several verses, verses 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's pause there. Okay, so Paul has been writing to the Ephesians about unity. But here in verse 7, we see that he introduces a contrasting statement. But grace was given to everyone, yes, but to each one of us, each one of us. And this, he says, is in accordance to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay. In other words, Jesus Christ gave to every member of his church some particular gifts, and every one of those gifts in every one of those members is given for the building up of his church. But then, Paul takes his reasoning in a direction that we might not expect. At least I didn't. Quoting Psalm 68, a psalm that was understood as a prophecy of the Savior to come, Paul observes that the Christ would return in triumph, just as a conquering general would who in turn would have gifts to distribute however he sees fit. And then Paul takes a little detour. Okay, In verses 9 and 10, that's that's a little aside. Your Bibles may even have those verses in parentheses. And and that's for a reason. I'm not going to cover these couple verses in detail right now. But here's the summary. Paul's quoting of Psalm 68 causes him to return briefly to his subject matter from chapters 1 through 3. And, And so he pauses to rejoice in the incredible richness and allness of Christ. Uh, I, I like Paul. You know, it's when he's talking about Jesus, he just gets so excited he's got to talk more about what he talked about before. I'm kind of like that too, so I can understand. But then he returns to his train of thought in verse 11. Okay, so he'd just been showing that the victorious Christ has gifts to give, and now he describes what those gifts are. Christ gave what? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, some, some texts might say shepherds, and teachers. Every time I read that verse, I confess I'm a little bit shocked. That is, I'd have expected Paul to say that these gifts that Christ gives are things like the gift of prophecy or the gift of healing or even the gift of administration or something like that. And in part, that's true. Paul does say in other places in the Bible that those things are gifts and those things are used for building up the body. But what Paul is actually telling us in this text is that the gifts that Christ gave to the church are not all these awesome abilities, but they're people. He gave us people. The apostles, while certainly gifted with many skills and supernatural abilities in many ways, are people. And the prophets, while no doubt possessing the gift of prophecy, are themselves the gifts and so on with the others. But why? Why why did Christ give us evangelists and pastors and teachers and the like? Paul's answer is in verse 12. Christ gave us these gifts of people to equip 
the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, let me give a quick definition here, because here's another word that is commonly misunderstood, and that's the word saints. Saints is Paul's term for all Christians. That's how the Bible uses it. Sometimes people think it refers to some special class of especially godly people, but that's never how the Bible uses it. Rather, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your, as your God and Savior, my friend, you are a saint. Okay, so Paul says that the point of these people gifts that Christ has given is so that the saints, that's us, and that's the Ephesian Christians, would be equipped to do the work of ministry, which he also calls building up the body of Christ. So, I recognize that is a bit of a complex argument. It's, it's hard to wrap our minds around all what Paul's saying. Let me try to summarize what he's saying in these verses. The ascended Jesus gave gifts to his people, to his church, and these are the people that he gives, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. The purpose of those people gifts is to equip the rest of us. And that equipping is so that we can do the work of ministry, and that is building up the church. So in summary, we are all gifts for ministry. Thus, this text is saying that the equipping of the saints, the work of ministry, and the building up of the church are all accomplished through human means. The apostles, the prophets, the pastors, human means. That is a remarkable thing. Okay, that means that God entrusts his ministry, his goals, his fame, his reputation, and so on to fallible people like us. That's not how I would have done it. Okay, if I were God, I'd have just done it all myself, done it directly. I would have equipped each of you. I wouldn't have had you do it. Like each week, you'd show up at church, you'd maybe come up to the front and offer a sacrifice or a prayer or something, and then this, this cloud would descend, and boom, you'd all have ministry superpowers. That's, that's how I would have done it. You could have, you could have suddenly understood the Bible easily, you know, or maybe, maybe you'd no longer struggle with lust, and your back pain would be gone, and things like that. And then each week, you'd come back for another dose of God cloud power, and, you know, that's how God would equip the church. Wouldn't that be something? I mean, think about it. God can choose to grow and build up his church in any way that he wants. He's really smart. He could have done it in any possible way. Even things that we don't think of as possible, he just would have changed the fabric of the universe to make it possible. God can do whatever he wants. And yet, he chooses to use us. He could have performed all ministry all by himself. Picture like a, so a peewee, like t-ball league or something. And, and, and what he could have done is basically said, okay, instead of all you little runs running around who don't know what you're doing, I'm going to take you off the field, get on the bench, and I'm going to go up to bat. Okay, now you get this little toddler person like pitching at you and you're just like, boom, and you're cranking everyone out of the park. And everybody's like, yeah, this is great. And you would think, practically, that's the way to win a ball game. But we know there's something a little bit weird about that, right? Like, we would say something's not right. And the reason we would think that something's not right, I think, is because that's not how God works. Instead, he sends us, these scared, inexperienced, and distracted little kids, up to bat. And he trains us through our teammates, which seems totally counterintuitive. 
But he does so until even the most inept among us becomes a critical member of that team and who in turn is now training new recruits and somehow we win the game. If I were God, I would have gone with the cloud power idea, but I'm thankful he didn't. Because instead, he has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. They are equipping us. Our role is now to perform the work of ministry. But how? How do we do that? What does this equipping look like? And what's the goal of this whole thing? What does it mean to win the ball game, right? The answers to those questions are found in the last verses we're going to look at. Verses 13 through 16 and on the final point in your outline. Let's back up just a little bit. Let's start again at verse 11 to just get the flow of thought here that Paul has. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, Paul here has been urging oneness as each part is building up the body. And now, in verse 13, Paul states the end goal, and in typical Pauline fashion, he states it in several ways. The first way of thinking about this, first goal, he says, is to attain the unity of the faith. This has already been made plain. He's already given us how that is all supposed to look in those first verses we looked at today. And I think he does so because given how easily disunity appears, it's important to keep saying it over and over again. Make sure we don't miss it. Okay, that's the first goal. The second goal is the building up of the body to attain the knowledge of the Son of God. To attain the knowledge of the Son of God. This also should not surprise us, given that Paul's chief subject matter matter is and always has been and always will be Jesus Christ, God's Son. However, this is still a critical criteria because human history, think, is chock full of examples where we may even get unity right, but we completely miss the knowledge of the Son of God. For example, Adam and Eve were quite unified as they ate the fruit. And that whole group of people the people of the whole earth were quite unified at the Tower of Babel. But they shouldn't have been in that way. And Ephesus was quite unified around their god Artemis. But that was also not right. And even so-called Christian churches today can be quite unified, but around ignorance of the Son of God. And that's why here at Grace Fellowship Church, we passionately seek unity but we don't determine truth based on one dominant personality that everybody can just unify around. Nor do we base it on whatever is currently popular on the New York Times bestseller list. Rather, it's the Bible 
that completely molds our worldview, teaching, theology, counseling, activities, programs, and everything else about us. In doing so, our aim, the reason we do all that, is to attain the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, Paul has one more way of thinking about this, one more goal for us in verse 13. And this one may be the most surprising. Our unified, mutual equipping, Paul says, takes place until we attain to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Okay, so mature manhood, full stature, no longer children. Friends, Paul is saying here in several ways that the goal of all of what we looked at today in Ephesians 4, our unity and our mutual equipping, is so we grow up. Does that surprise you? It surprises me. This text has had plenty of surprises for me, and this is one of them. And it surprises me for a few reasons. Number one is that it's offensive. Paul, you're kind of being a jerk. Because like telling someone to grow up is telling them that they have a lacking, an incompleteness. And I at least don't like hearing that. Telling someone that they need to mature is implicitly telling them that they're currently immature. And that's offensive. Paul is saying right from the get-go that his Christian audience, that's us, has a ways to go in maturity. We need to grow up. And I think it's also surprising to me, and, and this may be mostly a modern thing, I'm not sure, is that it's countercultural. Our culture all but worships youth. You know, that we're, we're obsessed with looking younger and acting younger and being younger. If you watch nearly any television series, you will nearly universally see youth depicted as wise, while the older you get, the more useless you are. You know nothing, and, and you should be put aside, and we just need to get you out of the authority, because the young people, they're the ones with the wisdom and, the, and, and the, the superpowers and everything else. Newer is always better, right? That's what our culture tells us. And so Paul, saying that we need to grow up, mature, get older, Seems weird to me. It feels like the opposite of what we should do. But then I think Paul's saying, you know, lay your objections to this aside for a second. Let me paint you a picture of what the alternative is. And so he does so, painting this vivid picture of immaturity using the image of a small boat being battered by the wind and slammed by the waves, nearly capsizing and causing the destruction of everyone who depends on that on that boat. And all these elements of nature, Paul gives names. Human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes, even passing doctrinal interests. In other words, for Paul, immaturity means not thinking deeply. It means not discerning rightly. And it means just going with the flow of the dominant opinion, no matter how deceitful it may in fact be. That, Paul says, is what you'd expect from children, that's immaturity, and it is no more appropriate that God's people would be characterized in that way than it is if someone were to remain a child indefinitely. Thus, you need to grow up. Paul then summarizes his entire argument by way of contrast in verses 15 and 16. Let's just read that again. Rather, contrast, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice the oneness. The whole body, every joint, every part. Notice the ministry, the equipping, the building up, all into Christ and in love. And notice the need to grow up in every way, to make the body grow. So how do we do it, Paul? How do we grow up? How do we mature? The answer, Paul says, is what he calls speaking the truth in love. That's the answer. The truth is in contrast to the deceitful schemes and human cunning. The truth is what the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers are proclaiming. The truth is in the knowledge of the Son of God. The truth is that Jesus Christ descended and ascended to give gifts to men. That's the truth. The love is in the God and Father of all who sent Jesus Christ for us. The love is in walking in all humility and gentleness. The love is the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we're to speak to one another. That's how we mature. That's Paul's argument. And that, all of it, all of it, all what we looked at today, this whole section in Ephesians, is what we at Grace Fellowship Church mean when we talk about fellowship. So fellowship may involve hanging out with friends, but it's more than that. And fellowship will result in unity, but it's more than that. Fellowship means speaking the truth in love, building up one another by whatever means that Christ has equipped us until we're all mature in Christ. That's fellowship. Or stated simply. I want to just jot down something in your notes to remember this whole thing by forget everything else. This is it. Fellowship is unity powering maturity. That's why we have unity. It's so we mature, because we need each other. We need the mutual equipping. It's unity powering maturity. So listen, Grace Fellowship Church, from my perspective as an elder in this church, I want you to know that I am very pleased with how your unity is powering your maturity. I see it in the ways you interact with each other on Sunday morning. And I see it in the ways that I hear about and see you guys interacting throughout the week. I see it in our growth groups, like Vadim shared today, as we eat together, as we study the Bible together, as we listen to one another, and as we pray for one another. I see it even among the elders as we meet together to discuss how we can continue making changes to better equip the saints for the work of ministry in this church. And I especially see it looking back over these past years, and I've known many of you for many years now, and I can see vividly how each of you have matured and how you have learned to rely on God more and more over time. But, as Paul reminded us today, we must continue to grow up, continue to mature. doesn't matter how old you are, you need to keep growing up. We must continue to speak the truth in love to one another. We must keep looking for opportunities to do that. Thankfully, on any given week, we have many. Today, we have even more than usual. Because we have this time we call a fellowship time. where We have bagels and coffee and all kinds of stuff in that other room down there. We don't call it a fellowship time because we eat. We call it because that is an opportunity to speak the truth and love to one another. 
If you show up just in time for the first song and leave right after small groups, you still have that time, if nothing else, the entire week to watch unity, power, maturity. And then we have small group discussions each week where we get back together and we talk about the sermon and what we're learning and what God's doing in our lives. And that is a fantastic time to speak the truth in love and to ask about things you don't understand about the truth or where the love is. You can look for that. That may mean it's sharing a praise of what God has done or opening up about a hardship. It may mean sharing a scripture passage that's encouraged you recently or even asking someone to join you in praying for a friend. And today, we have an extra special opportunity because we have a church picnic, which we've often even called fellowship meals, because this is the goal. So today, when you come to the church picnic, and please do, come have fellowship together with us. Help us mature. Why not purposefully choose to sit next to someone who you don't know as well? So students, don't all sit together. Go out there. And in the same groups that always hang out during the weeks, go sit somewhere else. Get to know somebody that you don't know with the aim of helping them mature in Christ. You don't have to be offended when someone helps you mature in Christ because they need to mature too. And a way they're going to mature is by speaking the truth and love to you. So if you're here today and you haven't asked Jesus to be your Savior, I invite you to be part of this. Be, experience this unity, this oneness, this love and ever-increasing maturity of our fellowship here during the sermon, during small groups, during the picnic. We'd sincerely love to have you. Would you join me in prayer? Our God, who is Father over all, and through all, and in all, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from the punishment we deserve. And if that was all you did, Father, it would be more than we could ever ask for. Yet you did far more. You gave us your word. You gave us one another. You gave us the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. You've given us everything we need for rich, satisfying fellowship. God, as we seek to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, would you make us humble, gentle, and patient with one another? Would you give us insight into your word and into one another that we might be mutually equipped for the work of ministry? And would you use our unity and knowledge of Jesus Christ to mature us even as we speak the truth in love to one another? Father, you are clearly building up this body in love, and I thank you for it. Would you do more? In me, in my brothers and sisters here, and even for those who are visiting with us today, I ask for your blessing on the rest of our fellowship together today, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.